baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Have you ever dreamed about being your own boss? I think it's safe to say that most of us have, but coming up with a good money-making idea, that's the challenge. Experts tell us the key lies in selling a product or service that we're passionate about. For one online entrepreneur, Stephanie Matteau, who you might remember from the TLC show 90 Day Fiancé, the opportunity came when her fans began requesting and actually purchasing sealed jars containing her farts. Am I allowed to say that? I guess I just did. Matteau claims that she made $200,000 from selling her flatulence before health concerns forced her to stop and pivot into the world of non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. Now, her story has brought up a lot of questions for us, including what people can get away with selling on the Internet. Can you make something for me real quick right here? Coupon for a, a COVID vaccination? So this, this can be... Um... This is like a COVID brontosaurus. Meet Nate, just Nate, a software developer and comedian from Minneapolis who runs the Terrible Origami storefront on Etsy, where you can find items like that COVID dinosaur, which Nate estimates would carry a price tag of about $129. That's just off the top of his head. We caught up with him recently, and a guy you may be familiar with. Arabian Prince is one of the founding members of the rap group NWA. Back in the day, now a tech entrepreneur, and his business partner, Nick Donarski, who helped us get a better understanding of NFTs and the digital economy. It's going to be to the point to where people are going to use NFTs every single day, just like they use a website, and not really worry about what that mean, evil, magical word is. I'm Mike Rogers, and this is Something Offbeat, the podcast where we take a deeper dive into some of the stories that have all of us scratching our head. Nate began selling terrible origami, which is exactly what its name implies, on Etsy in 2014. And over the years, the project has attracted some media attention. All right, Nate, tell us, we've got to know, how did this all start? I was taking a sabbatical, so I'm a software developer by trade, and I was wanting to check off a couple of things off my bucket list. One was to, like, create an app and get out of the corporate world and, you know, live my life as an entrepreneur. And the second is I'm I'm also an improviser. So there was a five-week summer intensive in Chicago that I wanted to take an improv and do that. And so I did that, and I got back, and I started on my app. And I just, I just couldn't get, I just wasn't excited about it. Like I, I couldn't get excited about something I had been doing for so long. And so really it was just an act of creative desperation. I hit like a low point in my app building and like my feeling of self-worth was pretty low. I was like, well, this is, this is awful. What I really want to do is just crumple up garbage and sell it on Etsy. Like it seems like people can do that. So why can't I do that? And that's how the shop started. 
you call it a shop. I mean, is it an actual workshop or do you just do this at home? I haven't created a piece in several years, um, but in my apartment, I would just take out recycling and, and crumple it up and attach a name to it or a description. And honestly, it just, it, it brought me a lot of joy. And that's why I did it. Not because I thought people would actually buy it, but because I, I thought it was pretty funny. And so it's just that simple. You crumple up a piece of paper, you take a picture, put it on Etsy, and are people buying them? No, nobody's buying. Like, I've made three actual origami sales, all to friends. One I got as a, a wedding gift for myself from them. And the other was just because the, they thought the joke was so funny. They're like, sure, I'll buy your, your cola crab box and, and sent me $100. And then I just felt incredibly guilty about it. And so you made a total of how much? on your terrible Oregon. Oh, I've lost money. I, I, I've sold mostly what I've sold is t-shirts, but it was such a small run of prints that I actually lose a dollar for each t-shirt that I sell. So I, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars I've lost by putting this, this storefront on Etsy, but I have to pay them every quarter to keep the listings current. So it's a, it's definitely a labor of love. It's, it's a money losing venture. Well, it must be. I was going to, why, why keep doing it then? I think it's a, like, it's a good joke. This idea that, that like there could be someone in Minneapolis that makes a living just crumpling up garbage, I think is, is pretty compelling. What is the uh, most complicated piece you've ever made? Oh, the most complicated piece is definitely a million dollar frog. I think it's, it's like a hundred sheets of, of colored paper that I duct taped together with green apple duct tape and folded into a, an actual frog origami piece and took some nice pictures of it. Did it ever sell? Well, not yet, not yet, but I'm optimistic that it will. How much are you asking for it? Well, it's called the Million Dollar Frog, and originally it was a million dollars, but because of inflation and supply chain, I've upped the price to $10 million. And these are on Etsy now, or you're selling them as NFTs or the actual item? or that, I mean, it? that's a fantastic question. Uh, that is the natural progression for Terrible Origami. I should certainly convert these to NFTs because they'd be more sellable that way. But right now, as it stands, they are analog. Uh, so you have to buy them, and I'll ship you a paper copy. Now, Stephanie Mateau, the part-selling entrepreneur who got us interested in this topic to begin with, she actually stopped selling her gas-filled $500 jars after doctors told her that the project was harming her body. I mean, you've only got a finite supply, right? But no problem. More recently, she's made another $30,000 by selling her sweat. And in January, she launched the Fart Jar NFT project in which customers can purchase fart jar-inspired digital art pieces for $186 in Ethereum blockchain currency. I know there are millions of people, I would say most people, in fact, who don't have a clue what an NFT is, and probably don't want to know. It's just like computers and smartphones back in the day. Are people going to have to get on board here or get left in the dust? NFTs themselves, right? Uh... It's just a it's just a digital item. It's just a representation of a one or a zero out there in the digital cosmos that makes up what we interact with every day. That's Nick Donarski, Chief Technology Officer of Arabian Prince's Metaverse Health Company, MD Dow. A lot of this stuff that NFTs can be used for elevates the security of a lot of the things we use already. So all of our um, apps that are doing mobile um, you know, messaging and things like that, 
those all can cater over to, you know, blockchain, Web3 technologies and NFTs. And it would be seamless for most people. Arabian, what did you think when you first heard about NFTs? Well, I'm a technologist, so I'm always ahead of the game. I've been into the blockchain space since 2008. So for me, I've been there in you know the beginning of it. But what I can add to what Nick just said is we got to look at NFTs, the blockchain, Web3, all of this stuff as the same thing as the internet when it first started. And when people said that crazy word, HTML, like you have to code in HTML, like no one knew what that was, only people who were actually building on the internet but everyone uses it every day. And the same thing with NFTs. I've heard them described as a kind of a cross between art and high tech, the digital world. Does, yeah. does, does that depend on your definition of art though? Well, I think so because, you know, I, in a way I'm kind of upset that they attached it to art first because it confuses people. And like Nick said, it's just a digital asset. It can be anything like, you know, Chevy tried to NFT or Corvette that didn't go over too well, but, you know, <laughs> Porsche NFT, a rare Porsche, and it, you know, became very valuable. So it, it's giving ownership to something in the digital space, more or less. What are some of the strangest products and services that you guys have seen offered as NFTs? I mean, is there a line you can cross where it just becomes ridiculous? Well, I mean, farts being one of them is probably the, <laughs> the weirdest. And the ownership of the real world item, I guess, of the jar of farts that's, you know, represented by the NFT it is just, it's just an ownership thing. I like to use the analogy that it's a collectible, right? If I collect a Tom Brady signed football, it might be because I think that it's going to be valuable in the future. But if I give that same football to my kid who's 13, he's going to go outside, throw it around and use it just like the football it is that ownership of that is really in the value of the owner. So you'll see trading cards. I see garbage pail kids is coming back in NFT form. Uh, you know, me as a uh, early nineties kid, I think that's awesome. Things that we interact with every day that just become these digital assets to hopefully be later used as something like Arabian said, you know, them being attached to art early was, was kind of detrimental to, I guess, the, the actual application of what they can be used for. And you throw in the influence of social media, you, you add that in. Has all of this kind of widened the playing field for artists and, and other content creators? Does it increase visibility? I mean, for legitimate artists, not the fart in the jar, but for legitimate artists, has this helped? I think it's helped for all artists. And, you know, that term legitimate artist is a very fine line, you know what I mean? Because if you look back at some of the early artists, the Rembrandts and you know, the Picassos or, you know, it's it's a matter of opinion of what someone deems art, right? So it's more or less a tool to monetize, I would say, more or less. You know what I mean? Now an artist can create, whether it's a, a piece of art, music, whatever, a t-shirt, what have you, they can monetize that and they can make each piece a unique item. That's another thing that NFT brings is the fact that each one of these pieces can be stamped on the blockchain as a unique item that has inherent value. What that value is, is to the eye of the beholder and to the eye of the person with the money trying to buy it from the beholder. So it's, it's kind of interesting and, you know, we'll see where it goes from here. What are some of the challenges to working in this way with NFTs or in the online space in general compared to traditional means of creation? 
I think that being an artist myself, a music artist, you know, initially you made a song, you got that song either pressed on a record or made into a CD or a tape or something like that. And you sold it through either a record company or independently to a distributor. And then they sold it at a record store. We moved into the digital realm where a lot of artists aren't making the money they used to make by selling each song because everything is being streamed. Now, what's going to happen with NFTs, artists can maybe take control, depending on how powerful you are or how many fans you have. It's going to go to that fan base now. So I can create a song. I can NFT that song and I can sell that song directly to my artist base or whoever. And each one can be original and that person owns it. If he wants to sell that song to somebody else, he can. If I only just say if I only make a thousand of this particular song and I give it to a thousand people as an NFT, somebody who's a fan of mine, who's not in that first thousand has to buy it from someone else to be able to listen to it. And that's where the value comes in. You mentioned how much money artists, musicians in particular, began losing when streaming came along. Was this sort of monetization inevitable, coming up ways you know, to replace that revenue stream? Yeah, I think, you know, artists, hungry, starving artists is coming back. <laughs> that word starving artists, and they're looking at ways of recapturing the ownership of their intellectual property. And I think this will help. Where does this go from here? I mean, in 20 years, when we look back at NFTs and say, oh, how quaint. I mean, we've got the NFT marketplace going for gaming. So you know, we build tools at OR, right? And that's that's my other passion, is we build tools to simplify all of this technical mumbo jumbo that everybody gets lost in. And we've built platforms for musicians that want to get into NFT streaming and they want to you know, get their music out there. The beauty of this for creators, right, is that you're not you don't have to be tied to a production company to create a revenue stream for your content. When you uh, started in the music business back in the 80s, Arabian, could you have possibly envisioned this world that we find ourselves in now? So for me, I would say yes, because, you know, I started and we look like we might be around the same age. I started with the Commodore VIC-20 and the Commodore 64 and the Trash 80 computers, you know, back in the 80s. I was deep into it when I was young. So I saw this digital future, you know, and I think for people who were very unconnected, they were forced to be connected first with the internet. Then they were forced to be connected with their phone. You know, first everybody had the little flip phone. And then it was like, what's this smartphone stuff? I'm never going to give up my flip phone or my BlackBerry. And now everybody's connected to a computer in their pocket. So I think this next generation gets it. And that's why it's moving so fast now. Do you prefer this over the way it used to be in the music industry? You know what? I am a captain flowing down the river. And whatever comes, you know, I do. I put the sail up and I ride with it. So for me, you know, I embrace the future. I'm Mike Rogers, and thanks for listening to Something Offbeat. This episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake, with audio editing by Chris Blake, original music by Myron Kaplan, and editorial support from Cooper Mall. Now, to keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got your own offbeat story that you think we should cover, please send it to us at somethingoffbeat at odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.